taken from Luke 10, verses 25 to 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you for joining us today in our live stream service. Uh, before we come to the Word, let's spend some time praying together as we prepare our hearts to hear from God and to open our hearts to His Word. Come, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You indeed that You have spoken. Uh, we thank You that You have revealed Your Son to us in Your Word. And Father, as we come uh, to the Bible this morning, we pray that You would help us to listen, help us to humbly sit at the feet of Jesus to hear his words. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would work powerfully in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would uh, remove blindness. Uh, your spirit would breathe life into our souls so that we would hear you and respond to you with trust and obedience. Father, help us to love uh, as your word tells us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is a book my family enjoys reading. Uh, you know, when I told Ian, uh, that's my son Ian, not the pastor Ian. Uh, when, when I told Ian that I was going to introduce this book, uh, he insisted that I show some pictures from the book. Uh, there was another picture that he really wanted me to show, which is sort of Christian battling Apollyon. I thought maybe I'll leave that for now, since you all saw the picture of the Balrog and Gandalf last Sunday. Uh, Dangerous Journey, so this is the abridged version of the Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress, as many of us know, you know, maybe some of you have read it, it was written more than 300 years ago by a pastor named John Bunyan. And Pilgrim's Progress is a classic. The story follows uh, the journey of a man named Christian from his hometown called the City of Destruction to this place called the Celestial City. And along the way, Christian meets many different characters with colorful names like evangelist, faithful, hopeful. Uh, I, I love this one, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. <laughs> Envy and hypocrisy. You know, I think it's rather obvious from the names who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in the story. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, so it's, it's a symbolic story about the Christian life. You know, as you, as you read the story, I think Bunyan wants us to learn about what this journey of faith looks like you know, as, as we move from life before knowing Jesus and moving towards the hope that we have in him. This is really about the journey of faith. Uh, we are in the part of Luke's gospel where we're also thinking about a journey. Jesus is on a journey. I think this journey began, as we heard, in Luke chapter 9. Uh, he's going to Jerusalem uh, because he has set his face to die. So each step on this journey brings him closer to the cross. You know, Jesus himself has predicted his death. You know, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So as we think about the notion of discipleship, what we mean by discipleship really is following Jesus on the way to the cross. Following Jesus on this journey as he makes his way to the cross, and we follow in his footsteps. But, but what does it mean for us to follow Jesus on the way to the cross? What does it look like for us in practice? Well, in, the, in, in these chapters of Luke's Gospel, Luke begins to unpack what it looks like to follow Jesus very practically in the different areas of our life. And as Jesus makes this journey to Jerusalem, he's going to meet a number of characters along the way and these characters, you know, just like in Pilgrim's Progress, these characters teach us important lessons of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in our passage today, we will meet three characters, a lawyer and two women, Mary and Martha. And these three characters teach us two key truths about how we follow Jesus. And, and those truths are, are really the, the points for our sermon this morning, following Jesus involves one, loving others, and two, listening to Jesus. So loving others and listening to Jesus. So our passage begins in, in verse 25 uh, with a lawyer's question. So after hearing Jesus teach, this expert in the Old Testament law stands up and asks, uh, teacher, you know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question itself doesn't mean that the lawyer is thinking about salvation by works. You know, after all, the question sounds like 
the one asked by the, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, you know, what must I do to be saved? So this question about eternal life reminds us that there is more to our existence than just life in the here and now. You know, as, as Bay prayed just now, you know, that we pray that this current crisis will cause many to think about not just life in the here and now, but to think about the hope that we have or, or maybe don't have apart from Jesus. So eternal life in the Bible doesn't only mean that we'll live forever. So eternal life in the Bible is not just a, a matter of quantity, but more fundamentally, eternal life is a question of quality of life. Now, Jesus says in, in John 17, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they know you. Right? The, the quality of life that comes from knowing God. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we think about eternal life, it's fundamentally about knowing God and about knowing Jesus, the Son whom he has sent for us. Eternal life is about enjoying a reconciled relationship with God, which leads us to the question, you know, why do we need to be reconciled with God? It's because we have all turned away from him. God made us to know him, this is what it means to be truly human. It's to know our creator because we're made in his image. To know him, to enjoy him. And indeed, we, we find our greatest good in God's glory. So we find our greatest good in him. But rather than worshipping him, we have all lived for ourselves. So, so sin, you know, if you, if you want a sort of, sort of brief definition of sin, sin is being self-centered instead of being God-centered, right? Being self-centered instead of being God-centered. And, and sin leads to death because sin cuts us off from God, who is the source of life. So we can't have life if we have willfully cut ourselves off from the source of life. So to have eternal life is to know this God who's given us life and to come back to Him, right? To have eternal life is to be saved from sin that's cut, off, cut us off from this God, to be saved from sin and death. So the lawyer asks a good question, but, but the text tells us that he asked a good question with bad intentions. Now, he wanted to put Jesus to the test, perhaps hoping to catch Jesus saying something against the Old Testament law. So Jesus does what any wise teacher would do. He, asks a, he answers the question by asking a question. It's a good practice. So he, he looks at the lawyer and says, okay, you tell me, right? What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer ends up answering his own question. The lawyer knows his Bible really well, right? So it's an important point to make. The lawyer knows his Bible very well. The lawyer is able to quote from two passages of scripture in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 and Le Leviticus 19. So he replies to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy 6. And your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19. So Jesus says to the lawyer, and Jesus' reply is very important as well. You have answered correctly. It's the right answer. The lawyer got it right because the lawyer knew the Bible really well. Now, Jesus himself taught that the greatest commandment is to love God. And the next greatest is to love those made in his image. 
After all, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But, but, But here's the rub. Simply knowing the law isn't enough. You know, simply knowing our Bibles really well isn't enough. We, we need to obey the truth. So notice what Jesus says next in verse 28. Not just, well done, you, you know the truth, but he says what? Do this. Do this. And you will live. And indeed, as we look at this text, you notice how Jesus emphasizes doing to the lawyer? You know, the command to do brackets Jesus' reply. You know, it starts off his reply in verse 28 and it ends his reply in verse 37. Do, do. You know, like the, like the lawyer, we may know the Bible well, but are we doers of God's word and not hearers only? Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. This is not salvation by works. You know, the, the command to do is actually in the present tense. So Jesus is saying to the lawyer, does this doing characterize your life? Is is your life marked by this continual, consistent obedience to God's word? Not just no, but doing. Jesus is describing not, not how we do things to get eternal life, but rather he's describing the lifestyle the ongoing practice of those who have eternal life. And Jesus says here in this passage, if you have eternal life, you will love God and you will love neighbor. Right? This, this is what will characterize your life. What's the lawyer's response to Jesus? You know, this is what he says next. He says to him, well, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You know, th- think, think, about his res- think about his response. You know, what, what's, the, what's the heart behind his response? Well, the lawyer is thinking, yeah, yeah, I can do this as long as I get to decide who my neighbor is. Sure, you know, I, I, I can love other people as, as long as I get to choose who are the people I love. Because if I can do that, then I'm not obligated to love non-neighbors. I can be a loving person because I can choose not to love non-neighbors because I don't define them as neighbors. You see the heart behind the lawyer's question? And, and, Jesus, and Luke tells us in, in the text, right, that the lawyer is thinking this because he wants to justify himself. The lawyer knows that he's not very loving, that there are bounds to his love and if, if, he, if he only needs to love within those bounds, then of course he can obey this command. But if the command calls us to love beyond those bounds, then we actually haven't obeyed. And the lawyer understands that. So the lawyer is asking, where do I draw the line so that I can actually obey this? How can I make this easier for myself to obey? He's wanting to justify himself. A lawyer's thinking, I can love my neighbor as long as I get to decide who my neighbor is. Then I don't have to love non-neighbors. I can choose not to love non-neighbors and still seem to have obeyed this command to love my neighbor. You know, in those days, the Jews did not regard non-Jews as neighbors. 
Samaritans were not neighbours. Gentiles certainly were not neighbours. So a Jew like the lawyer would say, yeah, yeah, I I love my neighbour, I love my fellow Jews. And even among those fellow Jews, the lawyer would say, I love those Jews who are most like me. Pharisees, scribes, like me. So of course I love my neighbour. Now who do we regard as our neighbour? Do we ask, do we ask the question, who is my neighbour? Do we draw lines and exclude some, regard them as non-neighbours? Is the extent of our love limited to close family and friends? Is the extent of our love limited to the people we get along with? Is the extent of our love limited to those who are similar to us? Is the extent of our love limited to those who love us back? Now, this is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, right? We've seen this before. Love your enemies. So he defines enemies as neighbours as well. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. You know, one thing to justify himself, the lawyer tries to diminish the demands of God's word. You know, oftentimes we, we think that a person who's self-righteous would be more strict about obeying. But actually, I would say the opposite is true. Those who are most self-righteous are actually those who make less of God's word. Because they, they, they redefine what God's word is saying so that it makes it more manageable for them to obey. And then they can claim to be righteous because they have obeyed God's word as they define it. You see what the lawyer is doing? And friends, don't we do it all the time as well? I think the recent pandemic has cast a spotlight on a huge, huge segment of our population. Hundreds of thousands of people who live in dormitories and for the longest time have remained largely invisible to many of us. I think this question, who is my neighbour, is especially applicable in the current, situa- in the current circumstances. We, we need to ask ourselves, you know, how do we, what's our attitude towards this large segment of people who are, who are living here in our nation? What is our attitude towards the guest workers in our midst? How might we have tried to justify our indifference to them by saying they're not our neighbour because they don't belong here? Friends, do we say that about them? Who is my neighbour? So Jesus tells a parable in response to this question. He says, A man was travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho, a distance of about 30 kilometres He was probably a Jewish pilgrim heading home after visiting the temple in Jerusalem. So he's heading down from Jerusalem towards Jericho. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho winds through some really difficult terrain, rocky desert terrain, and descends more than a thousand meters in altitude. It was was notoriously difficult. The road was also dangerous because it was quite wild. So many robbers would hide along the way and ambush travelers. And then sure enough, This is what happened to the man. Robbers 
ambush him and take everything and then leave him to die. A priest happens to walk by. You know, many priests lived in Jericho at that time, so many of them would travel the same road after completing their duties at the temple. So, so if you want a contemporary reference, so this, this pastor has just come from church. And this pastor who's just come from church is going home. Now we expect the priest to help the fellow Jew, right? After all, priests are supposed to be the pinnacle of Jewish piety. But no, he sees the man and crosses the road, avoids him, passes by on the other side. Okay, so, so maybe not the priest, but... So next up, we have a Levite who happens to walk by as well. So all priests came from the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. But nevertheless, the Levites had important duties serving the temple. So, so this, this person was a faithful servant of the temple. So you could think, oh, maybe, maybe like a really faithful active church member who serves a lot. Maybe a really faithful deacon, right? So, so this Levi happens to walk by and he also crosses the road, passes by on the other side. Now at this point in the story, uh, the lawyer would probably expect the next character to be just an ordinary Israelite. You know, after all, you know, yeah, these ordinary Israelites are sort of the earth sort of people you know, and they will expose the hypocrisy of these religious types, right? But who shows up? Not an ordinary Israelite, but a Samaritan of all people. Now, some background is helpful. You know, when in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was divided, you know, after the reign of Solomon, the northern kingdom, whose capital subsequently became Samaria, so the northern kingdom of Israel went into exile earlier, earlier than the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom went into exile when they were invaded by the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians brought non-Israelites to repopulate this area called Samaria. So these non-Israelites came, settled in the northern kingdom, and they began to intermarry with the Israelites who were left. Right? So the Samaritans are, are this race of people so, who, who trace their origins to all these intermarriages between non-Israelites and Israelites in the northern kingdom. So you can imagine right, the, the way Jews would view Samaritans. Right? I, I think we have words for people who are called of, of mixed lineage. Right? So the, the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, like we read this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the Samaritans even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim which actually, incidentally, the Jews destroyed. So you can see the animosity runs very deep between these two groups of people. And the Samaritans adopted a mixed religion, blending elements of Judaism with other practices. So the Jews despised the Samaritans, and the Samaritans happily returned the favor. So the Jews viewed Samaritans as outsiders, as half-castes, half-breeds, impure, you know, so you expect when a Samaritan shows up, you would expect the Samaritan to turn his back on the man as well. Maybe you wouldn't expect the Samaritan to go over to the man and kick some dirt on him before he turns his back on him. But surprisingly, what does the Samaritan do in the story? He shows compassion and mercy 
to a stranger, and not just any stranger, to a hated Jew at that. And I want us to see what happens next in our passage. You, know, you see how Jesus goes into the details of how the Samaritan cares for the injured man. You know, Jesus could have told the parable, the Samaritan helped the man, end of story. But, but you notice all the details in the text. Very, very minute details, right? The, the Samaritan stoops to serve. He, you know, you know when you imagine when, when you stoop to serve a man on the road, you expect to get yourself dirty as well. Right? You, you, you can't just serve him from a distance, right? And I, I think that's a picture of how when we help, we, we enter the messiness of someone else's life. We get ourselves in the mess of their lives in order to do them good. Right? We, we can't just help from a distance. We can't just throw money at the problem. No, we, we enter the messiness of their lives. And this is exactly what the Samaritan does. He gets his hands and his clothes soiled with blood, soiled with sweat, soiled with dirt. He binds up the wounds, cleaning them with oil and wine. He puts the injured man on his animal. You know what that means? It means that he would have to walk the rest of the way. So the care that he shows is inconvenient. It's not the easiest thing to do. And then he brings the man to an inn to take care of him. And he pays the innkeeper two denarii. So, so historians say two denarii would have been enough to pay for food and lodging for about three weeks. It's longer than the two weeks any one of us would spend in quarantine at the hotel. So he pays for this person's hotel stay for about three weeks. So the help that this Samaritan gives is enters the messiness, it's inconvenient, it's very generous. It's very sacrificial. And he even commits to coming back to continue caring for the man. Why, why does Jesus go into all these details about what the Samaritan does? I think one reason is that Jesus is emphasizing for us the nature of love. He's helping us to see that love is intentional. Love is not just giving and then forgetting, right? Like giving money, okay, you need money, I'll give you money, then after that, so don't, don't get into my life, you can stay out of my life. No, love is intentional. It, 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 it moves towards the other person. It gets, it gets ourselves kind of in the mess as well. Love is self-sacrificial. This man spends time, money, energy to care for this Jew. Love is not just talk. But God wants us to love in action, in deed and in truth. Love is costly. It's not just offered at a distance. So who is the neighbor in the story? That's, that's Jesus sort of catch, uh, the, Jesus punchline at the end, right? Who's the neighbor? It's neither the priest nor the Levite, but it's the supposed outsider. Now the Jews did not regard Samaritans as neighbors. But here we have a Samaritan who is more of a loving neighbor than either the priest or the Levite. This parable turns expectations upside down. An outsider, a supposed outsider, loves God and others, while the religious insiders don't. 
Friends, uh, let, let's be honest with ourselves. If, if you're here, you're watching the live stream, we are probably religious insiders. Most of us are religious insiders. If we were to identify with people in the story, I think we probably identify with the priest and the Levite. So this parable is for us, religious insiders like us. We need to hear this because many of us need to think about how are we doing God's word? How are we loving others? You know, just... I was quite struck by this. Oftentimes in my life, you know, when, when I read my Bible, I, I, I get impatient with people around me, right? Say, don't disturb me, I'm reading my Bible. <laughs> right? I can't help you now, I'm too busy preparing a sermon. <laughs> right? I mean, just think about how upside down that sounds. To paraphrase the prophet Micah, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with my impeccable church attendance? Will the Lord be pleased with my thousands of hours of Bible study and service in the church? Shall I show God how religious I am to earn his approval? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, mere external religion does not please God. What matters is whether we truly love God and others. That's why Jesus says to the lawyer and to us, religious insiders like him, go and love, do this, do likewise. Go and love like this Samaritan. We follow Jesus by loving others, including those who are different from us. So be intentional to love beyond the comfortable social circles that we naturally gravitate to. Love others by dying to our pride and prejudice. Love others by moving intentionally towards them, getting our hands dirty, right? entering into the messiness of one another's lives in humble, servant-hearted self-sacrifice. Love others by repenting, repenting of our self-centeredness, repenting of our self-righteousness, repenting of our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness. Love others not because they are deserving or easy to love. Love others because Jesus calls us to. So friends, I hope we realize that who is my neighbor is the wrong question to ask. We should instead ask, how can I be a neighbor and show mercy to someone else? Friends, Jesus was a good neighbor to us. He left the glories of heaven and humbled himself in order to love and serve unworthy sinners like us. And how is God calling us now? to love others self-sacrificially as Christ has loved us. The next scene in our text is, is a domestic one. A woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her home and like a good host, Martha was busy getting things ready uh, to serve Jesus. Meanwhile, her sister Mary wasn't helping. She simply sat at the Lord's feet and listened 
to his teaching. And this makes Martha very upset. Right? She's unhappy that Mary has left her to do all the work. You know, maybe a bit of sibling rivalry going on there. So she asks Jesus, Hey, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. No, Martha's question is not really a question. Martha's question is like a statement. Martha's statement reveals her resentment towards Mary and and even her frustration with Jesus. She may have called Jesus Lord, but if you look at her, her, her statement really carefully, it's actually a command. Right? When, when she says to Jesus, tell her, that, that's an imperative. I, I'm commanding you, Jesus, tell her to help me. You know, Martha was more concerned with telling Jesus what to do than with listening to him. In, in our busyness and stress, I, I think it's oftentimes easy to become really self-focused. And even in our prayers, right, we, we come to God in prayer and we're more concerned with telling God what he should do for us than we are with listening to him. And, and Martha's biggest problem isn't her busyness. You know, her hustle and bustle is, is a symptom. Her, her busyness is symptomatic of a deeper struggle. And, and Jesus rightly diagnoses Martha's heart. He says in verse 41, she was distracted with much serving because she was anxious and troubled. Ah, that, that's the heart of the matter. It's not just busyness that's the problem. It's her anxiety. She was anxious and troubled about many things. Now, friends, being busy serving isn't necessarily a bad thing. Jesus himself was often busy ministering to the crowds. But here's what we should do. We should ask ourselves, Why? Why are we so busy? Why are we so busy? That's what Jesus is gently doing for Martha. Why are you so busy? Could it be that our busyness is a symptom of our worry and anxiety? And and what are we troubled about? Some of us may be anxious about pleasing others and living up to their expectations. So we busy ourselves trying to prove ourselves because our identity is found in what other people say about us. Our identity is found in our abilities and our accomplishments. So we feel the need to often prove ourselves, to to gain approval because that's where we live. Some of us may be anxious because we fear not being in control. So so we get really busy because we're trying to exert control on every part of our lives, even the part of our lives, even the lives of other people that we have no responsibility being in control over. But, But we busy ourselves exerting that control because we fear the loss of control. You know, we think everything depends on us, we are radically dependent on ourselves. So what is the remedy for our busyness? How do we solve the problem of busyness? I hope we realize that the issue, that what we need is not better time management. 
what we really need is to focus on what truly matters. That's why Jesus says in this text, one thing is necessary. It's a very clarifying statement, right? You look at all of your life and all of its complexities and busyness, all the responsibilities that you have laid out before you, and Jesus says to you, he says to me, one thing, just one thing is necessary. What is that one thing? The text tells us we must listen to Jesus, just as Mary humbly sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Jesus says listening to him is crucial, is critical. We cannot do without that because that's the one thing that we need. We can do without a lot of other things, but we can't do without this. It's to listen to Jesus. So isn't it ironic that some of us are so busy serving that we have no time to read our Bibles? Isn't it ironic that some of us are so busy that we don't come to Jesus and ask him for help? We cannot follow Jesus unless we know him, and we cannot know him unless we hear, trust, and obey what he says. It's like, saying some, it's like, it's like me telling Claire, my wife, oh, I love you so much, but I have no time to listen to you. I love you so much, but hey, you know, I, I don't really need to know you better. You know, I just, I just, I, I love you. you know, it doesn't make sense. So friends, we need to kind of hit pause in our lives and ask ourselves, are we doing the one thing that is necessary? How are we immersing ourselves continually in the word of Jesus? So as, as a pastor, I need to ask myself, do I, own, do I read the Bible only when I need to preach and teach something? Or am I reading for the good of my own heart, for the good of my own soul? Do we listen to sermons and think someone else needs it? <laughs> or are we listening for the good of our own hearts, for the good of our own souls? Friends, we must guard ourselves, guard our hearts from anxiety and anything else that distracts us from Christ. His word is the good portion we need. Martha was busy with earthly food, but Mary knew that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We listen to Jesus because he alone has the words of eternal life. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus' words to Martha tell us what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Friends, we realize this, that we love God by listening to his son. We love God by listening to his son. That's why Jesus says in verse 22 of Luke 10, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And how does the Son reveal the Father to us? He tells us in his word. And we cannot love God unless we know him, and we cannot know him unless we know his Son. This is the reason why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He is determined to die on the cross for sinners in order to bring us back to God. He is giving his life so that we might know God. In Christ, God forgives our sins, welcomes us into his family as his beloved children. And friends, this is the one thing that is necessary. 
This is the one thing we need. And we need to listen to Jesus so that we know how we can receive life from Him. So Jesus says to His disciples in, in verse 20 in, in Luke 10, you know, don't, 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 be, don't rejoice that you can do all these amazing things for me. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you know me, that you have the one thing that you really need. Jesus laid down his life for the unloving and the unlovely. And because, because Christ has loved us, he now makes it possible, he now enables us to love others with the same self-sacrificial love that we have freely received. You see how these two incidents are linked? How do we love others? We, we must listen to Jesus and know him because it's by knowing him that we're able to love like the Samaritan. That's why John says in 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And these three characters show us how we follow Jesus. The lawyer's mistake was that he thought he could obey the law without Jesus. And he wanted to justify himself. Martha's mistake was that she wanted to serve without listening to Jesus. But friends, it is impossible for us to be good without God, without Christ. We need him. We need him. We need him to help us love. We need him to help us serve. The call to love and to serve should drive us to our knees in complete dependence on Christ. Mary shows us what this looks like. We come humbly to him, sit at his feet, and listen to him. So friends, will we follow Jesus by loving like him and by listening to him? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you have not left us to ourselves, but in your kindness you have revealed Christ to us in, in his word. Father, as we come to you in prayer, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect on how we are obeying Christ. Are we loving like he loved us? Are we listening to him? Father, in a moment, uh, reflection questions would come up at the end of our service, and we pray that we would take time to reflect on these questions. We pray that you would search our heart with your truth, that your spirit would convict us, your spirit would move us powerfully to, to truly follow Jesus. How are you calling us to love self-sacrificially as Christ has loved us? Father, we pray that you would work powerfully in us, that you draw us to yourself, Oh, Father, we pray for your blessing. We seek your help through Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.